I was a lion in the tall grass. Wish I had a pilot in a podcast. Wish I had a strong donkey that can haul ass and travel with portable speakers playing bars scats. I wish I had a million dollars. I wish I had a million albums. I wish I had a million problems. That way I couldn't pinpoint all one million outcomes. I wish I found a genie lamp. I wish them girls gave me them sugar like Beanie Man. Yeah. I wish I was a comedian. Late night sitcom syndicated on TV land. I wish this well had water in it. These kids are stealing all my pennies. Focused on my wealth. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish for help. It's like, it's like, I wish, I wish that every time we love and it feels just like this. I wish, I wish that every time we do it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish that every time we love and it feels just like this. It feels just like this. It feels. I wish I had a time machine. Wish I had a better rhyming speed. Wish that I could speak to giants after climbing up a green stalk that grew from my lime bean. I wish that I could spread my wings. I wish that I had seven limbs. That way I'd hold on to everything and laugh when I hear people wishing for the better things. I wish I spoke fluent Spanish. Dímelo, dímelo. At least I kind of understand it. <laughs> wish that I could throw the deuce like Gambit and get so large I could play pool with the planets. Yeah. I wish I was an astronaut. I wish I knew more classic rock. <laughs> Focused on myself. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish for help. It's like, it's like. I wish, I wish that every time we love and it feels just like this. I wish, I wish that every time we do it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish that every time we move and it feels just like this. Feels just like this. It's just, it's like, like who the donkey? We would turn some dumb shit into something that got everybody wild in our circumference. Make assumptions, it ain't nothing new. Fuck a mile, fuck a you. I'm the truly to these rappers. Niggas last in love loop. Don't go stupid, but then they Carolina rings. Two J's and I'm not nobody. Good times, hanging in the chapel. Waiting for a hot meal, lighting up the combine. Looking for a hot meal, about to start a cock. Hello, cats and kittens, and welcome back to a special 4th of July episode of The Debrief. I am your host, Brianna Joy Gray, and this week we are here to talk about whatever you want, but the focus can be on this week's episodes of Bad Faith. We put out for you, because you're special, and we need each other, a holiday episode. Finally, I'm giving my takes, as it were, about the Dobbs decision. I've obviously spoken about it on the Hill. I spoke about it on Useful Idiots this week. I hope you definitely check that out. I always loved speaking to Katie and Aaron Mate, um, but hadn't talked about it on Bad Faith yet, partly because, you know, I was a little bit exhausted from having gone over and over again in all these other contexts, partly because I thought it was a little bit, uh, it might be of some utility to let it breathe and cover some of the reaction and not just the decision itself, which I think is better covered by people who have better expertise in constitutional law. So I had two of my favorite conversational companions on, uh, Eliami Olerin and Kate Willett, two of the funniest women I know, to be honest, uh, to talk about a subject that is obviously no laughing matter. But I appreciated the levity, especially since, despite it being the fourth, some of you might not be in such a revelatory mood. I know we're all probably just still processing the news of the 4th of July day shooting in Highland Park. Illinois, a shooter had a high-powered rifle from a rooftop, uh, and the reporting is that it was very purposeful, intentional, very random. Um, 
You know, and I'm curious to know if this is at all affecting your plans. I was debating whether or not just to watch from my roof or to go down to watch the fireworks in the mall. And this is certainly militating in the direction of the former. But we can talk about whatever you'd like. I see there's a queue already queuing. I'm going to keep it pretty short and sweet today. So let's get right to it. Andy, you're up first. What is on your mind this afternoon? Hey, can you hear me? I can. What's up, Andy? So, yeah, um, I kind of just learned about the Parkland shooting. That's kind of a tragedy, right? Yeah, I'd, I'd say so. I think it's six dead already and a couple of dozen that have been injured. It's, mm. you know, it's a, you know, I don't know. It's, a, it's what feels so weird about this is that it feels like we've had back to back to back huge events over the last like four weeks or so between Buffalo. They do inspire the each other. And yeah. then Dobbs. And then it's like we were on the precipice of having what felt like maybe a meaningful conversation about gun reform and actually getting something passed and then it was all the supreme court decisions one of it which had implications for gun reform and it doesn't seem like there's enough room to even really grapple with any one of these things not to be a killjoy please please andy do ask about whatever it was on your mind before i put all that shit on the table yes well i was gonna say that i think we should just have more rallies because like you've been talking about with your experience at the roe v wade i think that we need to be more organized. And one of the ways we can do that is just connecting with one each other through rallies where we can communicate and talk about our experiences, why this is Hello? Andy? Uh, yeah, oh. can, sorry. Sorry, you cut out for a second yeah, for me. Sorry, talk mind. about our experiences and talk about... Yeah, just connecting because I feel that's what's missing in today's, like... Uh, political nuance is rallies and connecting with each other. What do you think? I mean, there's something to that. We've talked on the show about how to rebuild a sense of community. I'm not entirely, I don't entirely know. I mean, I think there are a lot of different ways to go about it and let a million flowers bloom as it were, but Mm -hmm. I suspect it's going to take a little bit more intimate community building and a little bit more prolonged than that's what rallies, I mean. which yeah. seem to be a little bit more sporadic. Yeah, I was okay. but a couple of my good friends were in town this weekend, and we were talking about. I've never been a religious person ever, and my family is not religious in any way, shape, or form. But he is, and we were talking about you know the value of spirituality, and I was looking at this church um, that we were walking by, and I was like, oh, did you have you used to go to church? And it was a Unitarian church, and it's like, is this something that would help me build some kind of tie in a community that I'm not really from here in D.C.? And you know, I do think it's gonna part of the issue is that. So many of us don't have those kinds of traditional cultural ties, and we're going to have to figure out what that looks like. You know, there's no social alternative chapter in um, D.C. Maybe we should start one. But, yeah, I mean. Yeah, I think that's what I mean. Just, like, maybe uh, growing rallies to where they can be that sort of community, like, every, like, I don't know, once a week, once a month, depends on the place. But, like, really grow it to it's, like, very intimate and just, like, a cookout sensibility because, like, when you do, Mm. like, learn about like a lot of these uh the protests of the past like they did have lots of social you know gatherings whether it be church or in like or anything like with uh tea par- i think they had like tea parties during like the french revolution or something like they had mm. tea restaurants or something but yeah i think we could really grow a rally to be very centered about you know what's important to us and we can really get intimate if we really if i think if we first start at just like organizing good like cookouts at parks and just like organize events like that then i think we could take it very far with connecting with people and growing the movement that way 
What part of town are you? Uh, what part of the country do you live in, Andy? I live in California, uh, so it? like Cupertino. Yeah. Okay. Oh, that's where. Oh, that's where it says on my computer, huh? That's where Apple is, or something. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like <laughs> it's by Sunnyvale, so it's like Sunnyvale is the famous like Silicon Valley place, but Cupertino is just as like big and bustling. A lot of Apple like um, technology like really grows there. Mm, my dad works okay. for Apple, so yeah. All right, but cool, yeah, we have we'll... a lot of parts, so I think we could like do something here and stuff like that. Andy, I hope you will report back to see if you've been able to kind of put anything together like that in your community and give Definitely. us any tips or pointers. Great. All right, thank if you I for just... co- Wait, yeah, I just want to say for mm-hmm. things that you can do this weekend, I hope you enjoy your weekend and everything. You were talking about music, and I highly recommend lots of uh, bossa nova from uh, uh, Brazil because that's where a lot of great. Um, protest music comes from specifically Chico Barak's uh, Constructo and Chalice. Those are very good and I very highly recommend those. Thank you. I appreciate that. I have a playlist called Girl Bossa Nova already (laughs) and I will uh, I always look forward to being able to add add things to it. Great. And and two movies that are very good. Sorry. Okay. But two movies you should watch are Everything Everywhere All at Once and The Batman Movie. Those are just really good. Enjoy your weekend. Okay. I mean, I, I'm like halfway through The Batman Movie. I, I'm struggling, I gotta say. It's uh, kind of but... slow and dark. But I've heard very good things about um, everybody, okay, everywhere, yeah. <laughs> whatchamacallit. And I just saw that it's on Amazon uh, for free. So okay, I will be checking that out. Thank you, Andy. Keep the faith, yeah. Keep the faith. All right, Harley, what's on your mind this afternoon? Holly, can you press the unmute button and let us know what's on your mind? All right. Double muted. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> what's going on? What's on my mind? All right. I am a uh, quote-unquote corporate type, right? Mm. So I from home, pretty much remote. I do a lot of development work, quote-unquote a sweet job, where I am pretty much coasting in life. Like, I don't have a lot of problems. Compared to the average American out there today. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to go protest on the street. Mm -hmm. I did that in my college days and I realized it didn't really lead anywhere. You know, folks with actual power don't listen to people screaming outside a building. They just don't. Mm -hmm. Things that move them are either personal uh, things they want to get done, like they're greedy. They want a certain position. You can influence that person. Uh, corruption is pretty much the way to get things done now these days. Mm. So as a person who's very aware of that and knowing that money moves faster than, you know, a group of 100 people screaming outside of a building, mm. where do we put our money now? Because the Democratic Party is pretty much a wash. I mean, they've lost any real power for the next hundred years, the way the laws are written. So is there another party or do we need to essentially call it right? Just, you know, we lost this one. America might not be a democracy for the next 50 years. If you're looking for a democracy, go down South, maybe South America, somewhere there you can get a flavor of what you want. But what are the realistic options for types like me because i feel like there's a lot of us right we're not going to go out protesting we have some disposable income we want to put somewhere but we're not seeing val like really good organizations or the, the information is murky 
So, you know, I'll just cede the floor to you. What do you think? Where, what's your answer to that question? I don't know. It's a, it's a good question. And it's one that we've been talking about on an ongoing basis on this podcast and people have different thoughts and feelings about it. You know, um, there are a lot of people who don't think regardless of whether or not you're relatively comfortable that putting money into the electoral process is especially useful, especially without mass protest movements. I think I disagree with you. I mean, I agree in part that the, that protests are, often ineffective, but not because they are protests and, or because there are a hundred people outside screaming or what have you, but because they don't disrupt capital. They don't pose any real threat. What's it? It's not a demand. If it doesn't mean anything, you can just ignore someone marching forever. And if there are no political consequences and if there are no financial consequences, then why would you listen? So I think that the question might be less where you can put your disposable income um, where you can put your capital and how you can disrupt the capital flow of the people that you want to pay attention to you. And I think, and again, I'm really trying to get some folks on the show who are organizers, but it's, it does seem to me that with all of the public outcry over Dobbs and some of the other things that have been going on in the country, it feels to me, and again, I don't want to be pre- presumptive. Maybe there's something I don't know, and I'm certainly not telling other people who are in labor organizations, how they should wield their power. But it seems to me that this might be an opportunity for the kinds of labor withholding that has been so successful in the past. And I will be curious to see if any groups like, let's say, the National Nurses United or the Flight Attendants Union or any of these teachers unions that have, you know, gone on strikes in the recent past who have let's say endorsed progressives like Bernie Sanders that have you know, progressive leadership like Sarah Nelson will take a moment like this, especially given all of the pressure that's going on with flights right now um, already and use it to say, well, if you want these industries to work, you have to give basic protections to women. <laughs> like this is an equal rights issue. You know, if you want to fly, this is, this is what it is and use their power in those kinds of ways. And to the extent that they might choose to do so, I do think there's probably room and use for people to give money to strike funds to help support the folks that are forgoing their salaries and able to fight for this greater right for all of us. Yeah. And, you know, you presented a very specific problem and a specific solution. And that's great. I feel as if that was more accessible to folks who are not paying attention. Right. So someone who I, I like, they like that idea. Let's go mm-hmm. with it. How do we make that happen? Besides, it's a great idea, but ideas without any type of execution fall moot most of the times. So I feel as if we have these conversations, you know, there was a tragedy today with the, the um, shooting that just happened. I just found out on this call. Of course, there's going to be a wave of media and conversations talking about what we should do about guns and um, what the Democrats may do or what this group may do. But there's no series of steps, even if some of the steps are not the obvious steps, but just a place we all can go review the steps and say, all right, who needs help on executing the step X, Y, and Z? Swarm the step and figure it out. If it's, I'm not saying like anything illegal here, but if it's a point where we can apply pressure to understand what is that pressure we need to apply and who can help do that type of stuff. I feel like that's just like a missing central nervous system to this 
moment right now. And there's really no one you can point to because either the media is concerned about, you know, the January 6th hearing stuff, which we all saw publicly with our eyes. We don't need two years of uh, coverage to figure out what happened. But um, there's no real, you know, I'll take it back. I'll say breaking points in the Hill, what you guys do kind of gets into it. But you have people from the right who are kind of like interjecting and just we're, we, we should be done arguing with those folks at this point because it leaves nowhere. So rather than have a discussion of uh, back and forth with someone who doesn't agree with you and you know they don't agree with you in bad faith, they're using all these bad faith talking points, why don't we just centralize the conversation among folks who there's already a plan out there. You all agree on a plan, like substantive policies, things that are written down in a easy to use website. It could be a blog post for who cares, but something we all already agree on and we can have an actual conversation about next steps, not just, you know, this sucks. And these are the theoretical ideas we can probably do, but, you know, we don't know who's going to do it. We don't know who's executing the next step on it. We have no idea where this outlet of energy that's out in the air right now is going. Yeah. I mean, what I'm hearing from you, Harley, is that it sounds like you're really you know, jonesing for some leadership. And I got to tell you, I empathize a great deal. Uh, A lot of people criticized me, especially in the earlier days of this podcast, for seeming like I was wanting some cheat sheet or some um, shortcut, some quick solutions to the moment. And especially last year when it was, you know, the first year of the Biden administration or even, you know, this podcast started in September of 2020. So in the you know month leading up to um, the inaugural the the presidential election, at that time, it did seem like there was this opportunity point with the the protests being what they were, the energy being what it was that I was in a hurry to take advantage of. I was also wondering where the leadership was, wondering if Black Lives Matter was going to condition the, all of those black votes that were necessary, not just to elect Joe Biden, but to win Georgia and win the Senate whether or not any of those votes were going to come with conditions. Because there did seem to be a not organized movement, but a disorganized movement of people who were paying attention at the time. And it seemed like there was all this political attention in the moment. And I was in a hurry, truly, I was. I was looking for a shortcut because I wanted to take advantage of that moment. And I also similarly feel right now that we're in a little bit of this tipping point where there's something in the air and people, even liberals who – hate me and have have thought I have been unfair to Biden and foiling the Democratic Party for years are so disappointed because of Dobbs. But the issue is, even though I think that you're right, Frank, I, I'm not going to sit here and tell you, oh, sit back and wait. It's going to take time. Like I'm, I get very frustrated with that because as, you know, Chris Hedges has said, sometimes, you know, years happen in weeks, you know, sometimes, you know, some, sometimes it does, but if, if I could just, I'll, I'll, I'll finish. I'm going to play it. The point is that even if things can happen quickly, sometimes I do think that we are going to have to start taking some of a leadership role ourselves. Like the first caller who says, I think we should have rallies, whatever it is you think we should do. I think the point is that no one's going to do it except for you or the or the organization that you're a member of that you've chosen to join, like socialist alternative or DSA or whatever it is. Um, and that, that is a hard pull to swallow, and I'm wrestling with that myself. Like, what is my capacity? Is it enough for me in the, be, to be in the capacity of a 
kind of media figure? Is it worthwhile for me to take certain stances or get involved in certain kinds of actions that would threaten my ability to have this kind of a platform? What's the trade-off? You know, I mean, what do you think of that? Does that, does that feel kind of dis- dis- despairing to you or do you feel empowered by the idea that you could lead? <laughs> I, I tell you, if you leave it up to me to, to get this done, we're, we're screwed. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's why a lot of people also have criticized, not, this is not a criticism. I'm in the same boat as you as being a member of the bourgeoisie, but like, that's why people say it's not, the movement is not going to come from those of us who are relatively comfortable. Yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I just wanted to mention though, uh, on the time bit. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you're, you're right. It is a hard, hard pill to swallow. It's like, all right, I guess no one's going to do this. You're looking around, so I guess I have to do it. But, um, the time aspect of it, I think is is something that people could get used to you know if it's going to be just like they planned out um i don't want to say they the republican party and and you know evangelical conservatives planned out getting justices appointed to xyz court and whatever how long it took that type of coordination is some of the coordination i'd love to see at least on at some level with progressives and some informed yeah. coordination um. that if it's going to take 60 years, you know, let it take 60 years. But I think I think it's worse than that. It's not only not going to take 60 years. There's no one on the case. Oh, okay. There's yeah. no one doing it. Like, so um, I, I've mentioned this, but years ago uh, when I was working, still writing for The Intercept, I was researching and doing interviews on an article that I never ended up publishing because I went to work for the Bernie campaign before I was able to do so. But it was about this issue. Uh, the Intercept at the time was putting together like a, a tracker of all of Trump's federal appointments. And I was writing an, a, an adjoining, like accompanying article about the history of FedSoc and what the left was going to do to respond to it. The broad left, liberals, whatever. And um, that's how I got to know Eric Siegel, who's obviously been a guest on Bad Faith a million times now. Because I reached out to him for some commentary for this article. And I also spoke to some people at the American Constitutional Society. Now, everyone knows FEDSOC at this point. ACS is, when I was coming up through law school, was understood to be kind of the liberal counterpoint to ACS. When I spoke to the spokesperson from ACS about this article, about how it seemed like all of the FEDSOC activism was coming to fruition under Trump and how we were getting beaten at this game, I asked them, the spokeswoman, you know, what, what is, what is ACS doing to push back? Are you able to fundraise off of these appointments and do a better job doing the kind of recruiting of legal minds that FedSoc does on campus? FedSoc notoriously as a law student, you know, if a FedSoc event is happening, you should go because they have the best food. They have the best money. They got the good Felipe's burritos. Like they're, 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 they attract students to stuff. They have the glossiest posters. Like is ACS going to invest in that way going forward? Are they going to fundraise off of all of the Trump anger I was asking these questions. You know what she said to me? She said the ACS doesn't see itself as the counterpoint to FedSoc. It sees itself as neutral. So this this is the war that's being fought. It's not ACS versus FedSoc. It's not the left versus the right. It's the right versus nobody. Now, maybe things have changed. Again, I conducted that interview in like 2018. I need to go and find um, the tapes and see if I can still do something with that and maybe do some follow-up. But, you know, you got to really realize, I think a lot of us think that someone else is on the ball, on the case, doing the work. 
But the more professional expertise I've had over the course of my life, whether it's working as a lawyer, going to law school, being a journalist, asking around just a little bit, conducting the interviews for the show, if I've learned anything from doing Bad Faith in particular, it's that no one's really on it. No one's really on it. There, there was this moment when it was one of the deadlines for even the student debt. Um, the student debt moratorium was supposed to be up. You know, they've obviously extended it a bunch of times. But they said that the last time was going to be, what was it, May 1st was supposed to be the last time, May 5th, something like that. And, you know, I have so much respect for Astra Taylor and the Student Debt Collective. This isn't a criticism at all. But I remember asking because the last time it was supposed to be over was like January 1st or something like that or February 1st. And I was like, well, okay, well, what's the plan for that date? What's the plan for that date? What are we going to do on that date? What are we going to do on May? Okay, there's a new date. What are we going to do on, on, it was like May Day. What are we going to do on May Day? Are we going to have labor actions? Like, do we really mean it when we say we're going to do a student debt strike? Like, should we start rallying people to this cause? Like, are we going to be able to, are we at least going to demonstrate in front of the White House or something? Are we going to join up with Reverend Barber and the Poor People's March and maybe do some kind of joint collective action? Are we going to shut down the streets like the Canadian trucker protest? And the honest answer is that, you know, that wasn't the kind of, you know, advocacy that the student debt strike people were planning. I think a lot of people might have thought that if anyone was going to do it, it was them. But they were working on other very important things, but they weren't doing that. And I think that sometimes some of us who want certain kinds of things to happen don't act on it because we always kind of presume that there's some org that's more established, that knows more than we are, that's on the case, whether it's ACS or whatever. And I really want that to be true. I want, I want, to, I want to defer to the people who run in and you and all of these unions that are filled with people who are so knowledgeable and work so hard and are essential workers and whom I respect so much individually. But it has not been my experience, limited as my experience is, that they've always risen to the occasion and used their limited power in these moments where it feels like there's some political potential. Now, maybe they're doing a different cost-benefit assessment that I'm not privy to, and maybe they're right. Maybe they know that their workers are too vulnerable or they wouldn't actually strike or that they don't feel comfortable making that demand or they're holding out for something else. I don't, I don't know because I'm not a part of them, and I, I wish more people from those organizations would come and talk to me. I, Bonnie Castillo was supposed to come on the show around COVID, the fall of 2020 to talk about COVID and when Force the Vote popped off. She's the head of the NNU. When Force the Vote started happening and I told her I would love to ask her about the organization's thoughts on that, you know, she, I'm sorry, the organization stopped responding to my emails and they wouldn't come on the show. So that, that doesn't inspire confidence. I'm rooting for them. I hope it was all a misunderstanding. I have so much respect for them. But that, from my perspective, that's what happened. So it gives me a little bit like not that much faith, <laughs> you know? And so are you, I don't know, are you in a, in a union, Harley? No, I, like I said, I just, I don't really suffer the way I know some Americans are suffering now and need to take drastic measures or make certain moves in life um, to basically survive. But what I, you know, this conversation has um, changed my mind a little bit. I'll say to anyone on this call, if you're doing something and you need a developer, just someone who knows how to work with websites, put stuff up, take it down, put up a pricing page, I don't know, donation button, anything you need done in that 
in that regard, you know, just mm-hmm. reach out to me. And that'll be the way I, I give back. I can lead in that area, right? I know how to do that. So uh, like the guy who called in before, if you're doing something and you need a, a website up or an app, just hit me up. I really appreciate that. I, I, and I really do think collating those kinds of resources that we do have amongst us like that are, it's going to be really crucial. And I appreciate you calling in and taking these kinds of things so seriously and, and kind of struggle sessioning through it. Cause it does feel sometimes I know frustrating to get a bunch of no's for an answer or like, I don't know's for an answer, but I think Spencer in the chat is right when he says, you know, none of us know how to do it alone. A lot of our institutional memory of how to do this kind of work has been lost. Um, in neoliberalism <laughs> and we're going to have to kind of claw that back and much to my chagrin, maybe read a couple books, you know, <laughs> but thank you for, thank you so much for calling in. Harley. Yeah. All right. Thank thank you. And, and keep the faith. All right. Kate, I forget. Is it Kate or, or, or Kade? Katie? Kate. Kate. Right. Yep. All right. What's on your mind? Um, well, I guess just, I guess maybe after listening to, um, you know, and useful idiots. I just, I was thinking a little bit about sort of the overall structure of how the Supreme Court kind of, you know, keeps us, keeps keeps people in line voting for the Democratic Party. Um, and I, I guess I've come to be convinced by, like, by you that, you know, we really do need to just get rid of judicial review. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that Mar- I kind of think Marbury mm-hmm. v. Madison was a mistake. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the filibuster um, in the Senate, you know, was just created by a mistake when they were trying to reform their rules um, and then wasn't used for like 100 years before they figured out how how they could use it to try to maintain slavery and then maintain Jim Crow. So um, so it's kind of surreal that we're in this like situation where like the Senate won't like codify basic things. Um because like the Supreme Court already did it, but the Supreme Court might take it away um, using power like they shouldn't even have. Um, and then the Senate, we can't codify things because no one's willing to um, overturn the filibuster, which was just created by an accident. Like the whole thing is just like dystopian. But I do like the I, I guess and I do feel like no one's no one's on the case on any of these things. Um, but I do like the. Um, we're at least moving to a direction where people are talking about not just codifying Roe, but codifying like all the all the privacy rights and not just all the privacy rights, but just basically every good decision the Supreme Court's ever made, we need to codify into um, into law federally, and then we need to get rid of the um, power of judicial review. But you can't get rid of judicial review before you get those things codified, because if you do, then, then there's no protection. Um, so... So I like that. I like that. Maybe it feels like the liberals aren't moving in that direction. Yeah, I, I think it is important to have. I don't know any of these constitutional scholars back, either Eric or maybe Nico Bowie back, um, to talk about the logistical aspect. I do remember asking Bowie about how this worked because it, it ma- breaks my brain a little bit. I'm not going to lie, uh, and I remember him clarifying, but that was a year ago, and I don't quite recall what he said. Um, I'm not sure that you're the order of events that you describe, like the ne- the need to codify it and before we get rid of the Supreme Court is necessary. In his telling, I seem to recall him saying that he thought the Supreme Court should maintain some limited powers for basically decided constitutional issues that were um, like 
just straight up clear on paper, like, uh, the president has to be 35. Is this person 35? Yes. This person can be president, like not actually debate any ambiguities in the law, et cetera. So you definitely should revisit that. But I, yeah, I am increasingly at this point where, I mean, we know that our system was set up to be, um, easily gummed up. That was the whole point (laughs) and it's working. Go ahead. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, and I agree with that, but it wasn't set up to be this easily gummed up, right? Because, like, the filibuster wasn't there. Like, it wasn't part... None of the founders ever were thinking about the filibuster being in place. There was no filibuster. You know, it was a mistake when Aaron Burr tried to reform the court in, like, the early 1800s, and they didn't even realize it at first. You know, they just got rid of... They got rid of the previous question motion, which is how debates ended in the House, Um, and they they didn't realize what they'd done for a while. And then, like, eventually people realized, like, one person could just keep speaking and never get stopped. Um, and and then they decided, hey, one person being able to do that is a little too much. We'll back down to, like, a supermajority, and then eventually it gets cut down to 60. And then also, like, the Supreme Court. Like, no one was ever thinking when they wrote the Constitution. Like, it's kind of the craziness of originalism is that we're going to go back and look at the ri- original intent of the founders when they um, wrote the Constitution but we're going to just ignore the fact that the founders never thought there should be any sort of judicial review. They never, when they wrote the constitution, they weren't thinking, Oh, a court's going to be using this to decide what um, Congress, what laws Congress is allowed to pass. We're, the court's going to be using this to like strike down McCain Feingold. They were thinking, um, you know, they were thinking, Oh, well, the legislature is going to look to this as sort of like just a practical guide for what they're supposed to be doing and what this, you know, the states are going to look at it for what they're supposed to be doing. It it wasn't supposed to be like, this is going to be the court's way to strike down laws anyways. Mm -hmm. And I don't think like, I mean, for all their faults, like, I don't think the, I don't think they would have set up like a system if they wanted the court to have that kind of power, they wouldn't have given them lifetime terms. You know, we've got this like perverse thing where we're like rooting for Supreme court justices to die at the right times. Um, and I mean, really, I mean, there's a really strong incentive. I'm shocked that there aren't more assassination attempts of Supreme Court justices. Well, to be honest, one of the things that the Intercept observed when they put together that federal court tracker was how much more strategically Republicans retire. So you can go on senior status and not stop taking cases. Um, this, you know, um, this isn't just Supreme Court, this is federal judges. Right. Right. So they can go on senior status and still take cases, but your your load is lower and your replacement gets picked whenever you go on senior status. Right. So even if you don't fully want to retire, but you're getting a little older, you're not really sure if let's say your party doesn't look strong. The Republicans way more often than Democrats strategically go on senior status and or retire under a, a Republican administration. Democrats. Because I just really can't express enough how idiotic they are. <laughs> right. Just die. They just stay in RBG style for shits and giggles and then keel over at the last minute. Um, so it isn't even about assassination. It's, it's, it's not even as terrible well, as like, why aren't people more invested in assassination tips? It's like there is a way you can just do this for your own party and the Democrats just don't do it. Right. But even if Democrats did that, that would just sort of lock in the Supreme Court at the or lacking all the the whole judiciary in the present form. I guess I'm just saying the only way for it thing to change is like an unexpected, untimely death. It's just a really perverse system. Like, I mean, compared to just like terms, like if, you know, the president dies, well, they just get replaced by the vice president. So you don't get any big change. Um, and then, 
you know, there's not much incentive to do something awful like an like political assassination because you just have, you know, a term. So they're going to get, you know, they're just four years from then or two years in the House or whatever. Um, you just have another election. So there's no there's no kind of crazy, just awful political incentives. There's there's just, you know, a trans a sort of a clear way to you know, enact political change that obviously has been horribly messed up again by the Supreme Court with Citizens United and the whole progeny of cases before that. They've they've totally perverted the, the congressional and presidential election system too. But but I don't know. They're what I, I guess it's just it's frustrating that they the the Supreme Court has that much power. And so I guess anything where I see like a little bit of power being taken back from the court, um or, you know, moving toward you know, codifying things into law, um, I do see as good. Um, yeah, but it's it's a really kind of mild good, and there's so there's so much, so much that needs to be done, and that you know, it's tough to really imagine how it's ever going to be done. But yeah, the thing is, I I mean, so I, I largely agree. I do, I just I I gotta say, I don't have a lot of trouble imagining what needs to be done. I think that it's not appropriate for me to say what I'm imagining all the time on these platforms, right. but I promise you I'm imagining it. That's all I'll say about that. Thank yeah, you. Well, for, uh, there are like economic boycotts and stuff. So there's, there's, there's stuff we can talk about. That's maybe not quite as radical as, as some other stuff that we probably yeah, can't but we're talk not, about. Here's the thing, Cade. There's, who's going to do the economic boycott? I mean, I guess I, when you look at something like the bus boycotts and the, you know, over Jim Crow, I don't think it was like rich, privileged people doing the boycotting. I mean, there's still a massive middle class and working class that spend a lot of money in the country and drive the economy. Um, I mean, I agree that there's no organization in place to like do it, but I, I don't think it's necessarily just that we lack the resources. Have you heard anything about any um, MTAs or whatever, you know, transit authorities across the country uh, planning any boycotts the way they've done? Tony strikes. Mm -hmm. Um, No. Yeah. That just doesn't, doesn't, at least not in Michigan. That doesn't, doesn't exist here. Yeah. Like, so I I sit here and I I hope, I hope I dream the dream of days gone by, but I don't. Yeah, I I'm don't just see saying, it like, either. I guess I'm just saying, <laughs> it, I don't see why it couldn't either. I just don't. Yeah, I don't see why it couldn't um, either. You know, I mean, unions unions have been hurt. It's really hard to unionize, but it's it's not. I don't think it's probably any harder to organize something like. I mean, maybe it's just harder because we don't go to churches as much, and we don't mm-hmm. go. You know, we we don't hang out with each other in communities, so maybe it's harder for that sort of reason. Maybe what we need to do is just start start doing that sort of stuff, start with mutual aid forms, form some sense, some sense of community again. But, um, but I don't think like it should be, if anything, maybe, I don't know, I guess maybe there's, you know, there's controls over the internet and stuff, but it should be sort of easier logistically to organize something like a, a, a mass boycott than a, than I would think it would have been in the past. But yet who would do it? Whomst amongst us. Whomst amongst us. Because you know what? I I was told in very clear terms around force the vote just to say, hey, I think this is a kind of a good idea that I was not an organizer, that it was wrong for me to act like an organizer, that nobody should listen to me. Conveniently, no one else is the organizer. There are no organizers because everyone has dictated that there was no true organizer. 
Yeah, well, I mean, so, I think that's <laughs> problem. Yeah, we definitely don't want to have like. And anybody who might step up to do some leadership is told that they're inadequate in many respects. And because none of us, many of us who have the, like the resources and ability and the flexibility to do so are in a more bourgeois class and we, none of us want to step on any toes. So we sit back and we wait and we wait and we wait. Meanwhile, black lives matter national foundation collects, what was it? 60 million, $60 million has gone yeah. unaccounted for out of the 90 million total they collected in the summer level. of 2020. And here we go. So yeah, I, I, well, I really I don't mean to sound so like pessimistic, I but I just want to be really I'm going to cut through some of the bullshit that we've been you know force fed for the last two years, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah, I really appreciate actually you stepping up on force the vote. I do think I really wonder if we could have just you know maybe if it'd been you know you that introduced it first, not Jimmy Dore, but I don't want to throw Jimmy Dore was a good idea. Um, yeah. But I just wonder if there was a way that could have could have got presented to the squad where they would have got their act together. I'm not sure. Um, because I, you've mentioned kind of a, a lot of the people just didn't seem to know what was going on yeah. almost. Um, so, you know, I see some hope in that. And I, I do not to sort of endorse shortcuts or anything, but I also am very enthusiastically in support of, you know, vote withholding, um, which you talked a lot about. And I like the idea of, you know, maybe in 2024 or leading up to 2024, you know, a movement of just people pledging to vote third party if certain executive orders aren't signed. Um, and I think that might be how you grow a third party past like 5% and toward viability, um, because it's really hard to do in one election, but if you have people turning out to prove the credibility of their ultimatum, then they can, you know, then they can grow the third party without, because I guess part of the problem is just when you, when you walk into the poll on a general election, sure you can, or if you're deciding whether to bother to go to the poll, like if you if you're given up on the Democratic Party, given up on the Republican Party, like why bother even walking in to vote for a third party that you know is going to lose? Well, you need you need a reason, and I think that vote withholding, you know, we're punishing the Democrats. We're showing them that there was there were people who were willing to turn out if they'd done X thing. Yeah, um, and that look, I was screaming that from the rooftops in 2016. Again, yeah, I, I was anon- an anonymous person. Like I had like 400 followers. Like nobody knew me. So. But that was what I said to the people in my private life and what what my justification was for voting green in New York. And not just that, but to get them to federal matching funds and get 5% of the vote is meaningful. It's much more meaningful than me being the 16th zillionth Democratic vote in the state of New York. Yeah, and I'm in Michigan. It's a little bit tougher, but I'm still uh, I'm I'm done voting for, you know, I cannot vote for Dana Nessel and, and Gretchen Whitmer after they let Rick Snyder off. Um, I just, I can't do it and I'm not going to. And mm. I know there's a bunch of people in Flint who aren't going to do it. And I mm. wish we could, we could not do it in a more organized way than just having a bunch of people not bother to go vote. I think well, look, maybe this to, is what we get our, our friend, the last caller back on the phone. And maybe this is what we need to get website, the web yeah. support for. Exactly. How many people can we prove we have in various districts that are not going to vote, but for. You know, because this is this is has always been my thing since that article I wrote in 2020 about limits tests. The reason that they are able to vilify non-voters, people who do not vote for Democrats, as people who don't care and throw the vote, and people who should be paid attention to, is because it, it the the condition you have to have a condition for your. It's not that you're saying I'm not going to vote under any circumstances. Some people feel that way. God bless them. I get it. But right. there are a lot of other people who say I would if you did this. There are there is some combination of things 
that is sufficient for me to go ahead and give my vote to the Democratic Party. And I probably yeah. can be convinced. My list might be a long bit a little bit longer than somebody else's list. But there's a list that could be the be it all end all, but for a cause of Democrats winning or losing. And that's the leverage we need, because at that point, if Democrats don't do the things and they are reasonable list of things that would improve its electoral chances and that it absolutely is in its power to do and they can't blame it on mansion and cinema and they right, still don't do those things. And they still don't do those things. That's when we, that's when we have a conversation and the conversation shifts to, okay, but it's not my fault. It's the Democratic Party's fault. And that's kind of where we are in this role moment. And I'd like to capitalize on that. But I appreciate you for calling in, Kate. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for everything you do. And yeah, maybe, maybe you got to be our leader in this or a couple, <laughs> a couple people like you. Oh, God help us all. <laughs> Thanks, Kate. <laughs> all right. Bye. All right. I'm going to skip Happy around Ford. a little bit. Happy for it. Uh, and call up Hannah. How are you this evening, Hannah? Hello. Hey, Anna. Hi. Um, I just wanted to say to everyone listening that I have an idea um, Mm. and I'm willing to organize and put my time. But um, I just need a little bit of help. So if anyone's interested, message me. Um, I mentioned the idea in Katie Halper's show and I'm a little paranoid because um, I'm just like there was like a troll in one of her last shows. So I don't want to like give it up. But it's pretty much an app to put all our money in one hub. So if just I just need help because I'm a photographer. I just have to finish a few projects and I just need to do research first. But yeah, if anyone's interested, just message me. Can you elaborate a little bit about the idea? So it's like similar to GoFundMe, but it's an app. Um, and it's not like focused on individual people. It's just one hub where everyone puts their money in one place. So it's because obviously we can only fight corporations with money. So no, no one has enough. So I, help me understand because I think that. Oh, I'm sorry. You cut out. I thought you were done. Please, please go ahead. Hannah, I'm sorry. You're cutting out a little bit for me. Okay. Uh, no, um, I okay. was done. Yeah, um, I had internet issues. Let me just double check. Well, can I ask? Uh, you know, I think some people might be can wondering. Yeah, I can. I can hear you. I, I think some people might people might be wondering how do you avoid the potential problem of what happened with the Black Lives Matter National Org, where people gave all that money and there wasn't really a plan for how it was going to be distributed. I think people are a little bit more gun shy about you know, wanting to make sure that if they give, it's not going to like hype houses in Berkeley or whatever the heck. <laughs> yeah, 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 definitely. Um, um, <clears throat> well, the people who know me, they could tell you that I'm trustworthy. <laughs> but I would definitely, um, I need to do research first before I create this because I've already met with a few people who do community activist apps and um, I just need to do a lot more research first. So if to prevent that, like just my loyalty personally, as in who wants to be an activist and who wants to be an organizer. Um, and also on the app, I feel like I want to make it similar to Instagram where you could literally watch your money where it goes, you know, and then people. But it's also for people to to pay people to strike for wages. That's my initial idea. But um, so it's not really that's the only specific about it. Um, but yeah, so it's like, and then there's uh, education involved. So it's like an app that's interactive with people. So they don't have to get off their couch, you know? Um, 
because we all don't have the privilege of being locked down to run out in the street anymore. So, um, yeah, that's the basic idea. But I just ha- I haven't started research and I just mm. I was going to use this summer, but um, I, um, a project got delayed and delayed. So I have to finish that first. Um, but, yeah. Well, look, I like I see either, you know, some people in the chat are saying, you know, seeing us analogous to blockchain. Some people are saying they like the idea. I know that we had that earlier caller who, you know, said he would be help, willing to help with some tech support stuff. So maybe this is something that can be an ongoing conversation. I know folks have connected in the app and met up in real life and started organizing together. So maybe this is a conversation that can continue for those of you who think it's a good idea in the app. And I hope you do touch base and let us know how that goes. Um, Thanks. I think, and I think it's, yeah, yeah, go ahead, please. If people message me, then I'm more likely to get started. And cause do, you know, like if you go on a run on your own, it's like, you're less likely to leave the door. But if I have a friend mm-hmm. that I have a set of meet, meeting with, I'm more likely to do it. So I just wanted to say that. Yeah, I think that's completely right. And I, I appreciate you um, for calling in Hannah. Okay, thanks. All right, keep the faith. Uh, let's keep skipping around. I'm going to go to Andre. What's on your mind this afternoon, Andre? Hello? Hi. What, what, oh, what's, you can hear me. What's crack-a-lacking? Nothing. I was actually um, really enjoying uh, the episode that came out today. Um, oh, yeah, that thing. <laughs> Yeah, that was actually really, really good. Uh, with the other host, I'm like curious: is she Canadian? Because I loved her accent. I wasn't sure where to place. Like, I like I know her last name sounds Nigerian, but uh, so she's half Bahamian, half Nigerian, if I understand it correctly. Well, oh, I mean, cool. yeah. And she, by the way, is going to be she she hosts uh, guest host rising on Mondays, but I'm going to be out next week, so she'll be hosting all week. If you want some more of her, I think she's absolutely delightful. Oh yeah, no, she was she was definitely special. Um, but I, I but like listening to you know that conversation and I don't know something kind of dawned on me. And I mean, I've been thinking this for a while. And while we have these kind of debates, as it like, are we at a point like we can kind of agree that I don't think that um, like I don't think the Democrats actually want to win. Like, there's nothing in the way that they approach things that would make anyone believe that they have a strategy to win anything other than like quieting the voice of like progressives, like they want this kind of duality just to keep going back and forth because it's a way for them to maintain some semblance of power because there doesn't seem to be anything in it for them to change anything. Yeah. I mean, there was a time when that sort of take felt really like cynical and almost kind of like conspiratorial and delusional. And it was the kind of thing that made your friends at parties really upset with you and, maybe derailed your ability to just get them to hear your take about Bernie Sanders, but that is so far in the past now. Um, I mean, that's how I felt for a while, even if I don't necessarily lead with that because I don't want to alienate folks who aren't quite red pilled (laughs) that much yet. (laughs) Um, But I do think I got to say, I, I, again, it's not that I am happy about Dobbs or anything that's happened, obviously, but there is like something if there's a if there's a silver lining to this, it does seem to be that a lot of liberals are thinking that way now. They are having a, a cognitive dissonance around how the Democratic Party could have let this happen, and they are opening their brains to the possibility that they are actually as shitty as we've been saying they are for a really long time. But it's not even 
like it's not even what they've done in the past because I mean you can chalk that up to a whole bunch of things like for even all of like Obama's faults like I I I and I don't know if you've ever felt this but like you know as a black person in you know kind of um elevated spaces where you're around a lot of white people I can definitely see wanting to toe the line and not be radical because I could definitely see like you know you were, you've been indoctrinated to to go along to get along and that's how you've been able to get far in life so I don't necessarily hold it against him in that way but just the response to this is absolutely ridiculous like roe v wade is supposed to be the one thing that the democratic party is supposed to be able to fight against more than anybody else like this is their their staple point this is like we you know we believe in the rights of women we believe in like body body autonomy like i I don't and then like your your reaction to this is well maybe we'll think about like you know removing the filibuster for this maybe Mm -hmm. we'll do poems like it's I, like there's no outrage, there's no energy, there's no. Yeah. You just gotta vote for us, but for what? To do what? We already voted. You have all like you have all the necessary power, but you're telling me that there's two people or one person, whoever it is, can muck up the whole thing. So then, what good is it to vote for any more people? Because they could presumably do the same thing. A hundred percent. I think you're right. I think a lot of people are there. I think a lot of people. I'm telling you, I was shocked to see the number of people on Twitter that are saying like, I don't care about mansion and cinema. Stop using mansion and cinema as an excuse. I never thought I'd say, see some of these mainstream types abandoned uh-huh. the defensive mechanism that is the mansion and cinema thing. And just be starting to talk a little bit about rotating villain theory. I mean, I just, I never thought I'd say, see the day. Right. I mean, I think, well, it's also, and I hate to say this and like, and this is probably my cynical part, but I think they, they thought that, there would never be a legislation that would affect them personally or affect mm-hmm. their sensibilities. Cause when it was mm-hmm. like, you know, things like, you know, uh, like, like black lives matters. It's like, well, you know, ideologically, I believe that, you know, all people should be treated equally, but ultimately this doesn't affect my life. So also, it wasn't a step backward, you know, oh, it's true. just, yeah. so, so like, it's like, uh, okay, we had a movement that said that people wanted more, um, out of the, you know, wanted the police to be better, but the status quo is like, okay. So how I think a lot of people felt about it, but Roe being overturned, Casey being overturned, that is an actual reversal. And you're right. It's something that impacts the lives of ordinary libs as well. Yeah. And I don't know what this ultimately means. Cause I mean, like we all kind of recognize that this is going to hurt voter turnout for the midterms. But I don't think that's good either. Like, I I don't want more Republican control of anything because I quite honestly feel like if they get more power, they'll never relinquish it. That's it. It's over. Game over. Like, I don't know where we go from there. Because what what incentive do they have to actually do right by anybody if what they're seeing is we can do anything and there's no repercussions? Like, nothing. Yeah. Look, I. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I'm the reason I'm uh you know hesitating is because all of this is true. All of what all you guys are saying is true. And the reason all of this can happen is cuz nobody's going to do anything about it. I don't know how else to say this. I like no one will block traffic for it. Nobody yeah. will go on strike for it. Yeah. Nobody will uh, do a boycott, you know, a boycott for it. Besides which, they're making boycotts illegal. <laughs> you know, uh, with that was the Eighth Circuit case um, oh, about BDS. Oh wow! Yeah, 
I did have radar on it, like a, maybe last week or the week before. It all blends together. But yeah, to get a government contract in, I think it was a case out of Arkansas, you have to sign a pledge saying that you won't participate in BDS. And that, what the court decided, was not an infringement on people's speech rights. But anyway, like that's where the country is going. You see this incredible attention on trans people. I don't know if you saw this new art, the article from a couple of days ago in the New York times, which in this moment of Dobbs says, Oh yeah, women are attack on attack from the left and the right. We all know what the right is doing, but have you heard about the fact that we have to respect people's pronouns now? Golly. And the fact that like what, what was so crazy about that article is like we were reading the comments and all the comments were supportive. <laughs> all the top comments in the liberal New York times we're supportive of this trans baiting. And you're just, you're like, yep, this is, it's coming. It's gonna, well, that, it's about to get real, so much worse. That's our fault though. And I think I've said this for a long time, like, you know, just amongst my own circle, like, like uh, the libs are just too smart for our own good. Like all of us on the left, like we love these, um, these academic conversations, like where like, you know, we can recognize that like, you know, trans rights and anything LGBTQ involved is actually important, but we get into these conversations about language that just take away from what we're really supposed to be fighting for. Like I personally, like as a black person, I don't care about how you identify me or anything, but do I have health care? Do I have a place to live? Like, I don't care about your words that much. I, I care about my material conditions, but we'd rather fight and go back and forth over what's the right thing to say. Yeah, I mean, the thing, you know, I've said, I've talked very publicly on this show and on Bad Faith about some of my ambivalence as like a comms person about how to frame this and other and, you know, uh, whatever. At this point, though, like this person wrote a whole like 2000 word screed in the New York Times about how, quote unquote, women were under attack, you know, cis women were under attack from trans women because there was the only evidence that was pointed to was like, one awkward uh, tweet from Planned Parenthood that used some of the, like the birthing the birthing person language. Yeah. It's like okay, you're really comparing that. Even if you completely agree that that's silly language and the tweet shouldn't have used it, why are you writing two thousand words in the New York Times a week after women just lost reproductive rights? Are you serious? Because it's a way for commensurate. Because they want to sound smart. That I, I like honestly, like I don't see any. Um, no, like, I think it's like, no, no, no. Wait a minute, though. I think it's worse than that. I don't think it's because they want to sound smart. I think it's because they're priming an audience for attacking discrete groups of minorities in this country. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry, I, I used to not be this kind of person, but it really does feel like first they come for trans women, and then who's yeah. next? They're, the the fact that there there is like this has gone from, and a lot of trans people are going to be saying it's been gone from this for a long time. And I hear you, okay. But this feels like even a further jumping of the shark from like, oh, like, ah, I'm old and this is new language and it makes me feel funny inside. Okay. All right. Growth makes people feel funny. Change makes people feel funny. To full on bullying from the pulpit of America's premier news institution that's supposed to be a liberal news institution, but which has decided that its priority, again, timing, a week after Roe was overturned, Casey was overturned. To draw an equivalency between what the right has done with that political objective and a tweet, (laughs) a tweet from Planned Parenthood that used a language that somebody somewhere didn't like. It's an an open and explicit defense of TERFs. 
not calling people who may not be turfs turfs and all of that that sometimes happens on the internet but like just like definitionally an open defense of people who do not see an acknowledgement of trans women as women um the pit, pitting against the idea of trans women as women against the idea of uh the reproductive rights of people with reproductive women you know the ability to have children and it's and it's like i i'm sorry like that that feels very scary to me because who's next well, at that point, like then I don't then we can kind of agree that it's not about producing any kind of um, public information as much as it's just trying to find ways to sell papers and get clicks. And if no, that, I think it's actually that's what I'm saying. I think it's more nefarious than that. I think this is the tip like, of the uh, iceberg. I think it's more nefarious than that. I'm sorry. This is an agenda. I'm sorry. Well, like it's not going to stop. You know, if you if you think if you think it's not a big deal because you're not a trans person, I'm sorry. Okay. I don't mean to be, this is, I don't mean to do this cliche, but like first, you know, first, what is it? First they came from who? The communists and I didn't care because I wasn't a communist. Like, I'm I'm sorry. It feels so ugly. It's so ugly and so unnecessary. Mm -hmm. Now that's very scary. And if that's, then, then what's the solution? What do we do? How do we organize? I don't know. I mean, I do know. And I think, you know, as well. Yeah, I know. I, I just won't say that publicly, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know? Uh, <laughs> if you guys ever look up the maroon people in Jamaica, let that, you know, think about that one. But yeah, no, I get it. That's just, it's just sad, but yeah. Yeah. Oh, God. Uh, hide your wife, hide your kids. You know, like, I don't know, the guy who was shot 60 times because he had a gun on his seat and did a traffic violation. People are getting shot an hour and a half ago at a 4th of July protest. We're not going to have any gun reform. We don't have reproductive rights. The idea of a $15 minimum wage could even really get any national traction. I was told by other leftists I was stupid for wanting that three months right. into the Biden administration. We're in, a, we're in a climate holocaust. I don't know what else do people want. But, you know, hey. Roe gets overturned, and the president of the States was very clear to get on TV and say there absolutely can't be any violence or rioting of any sort. Absolutely not. There cannot be any violence of any sort. That's, That's the, the number one thing. message and the number one agenda. So basically, so, just you know, get die. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, we'll just we'll just keep asking politely, and then I'm sure everything's going to be okay. Even though the other side has never been polite about anything ever, like they they don't they don't engage in that kind of politics. So, nope. We were told. Look, I I I've appreciated a lot of what AOC has done over the last two weeks. I I appreciate her messaging, and I I hope that she is able to get some traction and help channel some of this new discontent with the Democratic Party to some place fruitful. But it is also true that when we all saw clearly what people are seeing now around force the vote. AOC, AOC literally characterized our desire to pressure the Democratic Party to uh-huh. use harsher, harsher language, to withhold our votes, to not vote for Nancy Pelosi as violence. And you see how this yeah. idea of violence gets weaponized. Us sending weapons to Ukraine, not violence. Us putting troops on the ground again in Somalia, not violence. Right. Us, the, the police killing one of their own in a practice drill, practicing how to how to address protesters, not violence. People not being able to get food to eat or put gas in their car, not violence. People no. having a housing crisis, kids, you know, you know, 
you know, homeless children, not violence, homeless adults, not violence, mental health crisis, not violence, you know, millions of dollars of oil spent in the Amazon, in the Amazon and Chevron not having to pay a dime because we're able to get, get up the court system and put Steven Donziger in jail in, instead, not violence, Assange in jail, not violence. Everything that you're kind of laying out right now just kind of illustrates what it actually is. As long as it doesn't affect them personally, then it doesn't matter. Because, again, like when you're talking about protests, when you're talking about don't be violent, it's like, well, now you're kind of uh, you're you're becoming an obstacle to me personally. Those of us that happen to be like in power, because like all these other things you're talking about, homelessness, mental health, like health care, all that other stuff. That's not really their concern, not the concern for them or anybody that they know. So that's, uh, I guess we're an all-out class war. And again, I don't know where we go from here. I mean, I do, but I won't say publicly. Yep, yep, yep. It's going to be very difficult, and I think, I think we're gonna. I don't know. It's it's very it's a very difficult time. And part of the reason Marianne Williamson has said this so many times. Part of the reason that we don't have leaders today is because the leaders that we had in the 60s that were effective, you know, they were killed by the government. <laughs> like, non-controversially so. <laughs> like, non-conspiratorially, like, just very much literally so. Um, and that's tough. It's tough. And people are very comfortable, relatively speaking. And people have things to live for. And people have families and such. And you see what happens to Stephen Donzinger for simply winning a court case. And you see, you see he's a bourgeois Harvard lawyer who just had the audacity to go and represent some poor Ecuadorians. And win. And you see, he went. He was on home arrest for three years. You see what happened to Julian Assange, who apparently is now insane, and it's a lose lose. I mean, that's not lose lose. Obviously, he should be out. But you know, the damage in large part is done to his mental health. You know, so Andre, I don't mean to. <laughs> Sorry about that. I also like I can't hear you, Andre. Are you talking? Okay, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I lost Andre or not, but I thank you for calling in, Andre. Uh cue the fate. I'm gonna take uh one more, maybe two more. I might come back to the front of the line after I take uh Amanda. Can you unmute yourself, Amanda? What's Hi. On hey. Um so first thing, I, I appreciate what Marianne Williamson d said about the leaders of the left in the 60s. Maybe what we need to do is we need to Millie Vanilli it. Let's get some <laughs> folks that can really perform, but maybe don't have the brains to put the words out, but they get the character and they mm. are there and they wreck or Elvis to, to make maybe a more straightforward <laughs> I just think because we do need some leaders and I think there's some good voices out there and I don't want to put those people at risk either, frankly, you know, I think we should force every vote. Screw this. Oh, we think we've got the votes or we don't, we know we don't have the votes for it. Do the count, please. 
Yeah. Do the counts. That's some accountability. If I don't, if you don't even vote, how do I know what your position is? Really, when it comes down to it, right? Yep. yep. And I, um, mm-hmm. as far as fixing stuff, where is the Alec for legislation for the left? We talked about this a lot. Um, I don't know what context, but how so many of these progressives. Oh, around force of it, I was saying like the good faith reading of some of the um, seeming slowness or ineptitude among the left left, not the liberal left, mm-hmm. is that because there are some left, uh, you know, liberal institutions, policy institutions, you know, like CAP and whatever, they're writing policy for legislators so they don't have to in-house everything. There's very little in the way of kind of left think tanks and institutions that are creating policy. So these staffs are, are burdened disproportionately to come up with ideas and clues. And in my limited experience with talking to some of the um, squad members, I do think there's a little bit of like, I literally don't know what I'm supposed to do next. I can feel the people who got me elected are upset. The left is upset that they feel like we maybe screwed the pooch on force the vote. But hey, what's the next good idea? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. and that's not an excuse, but it again is just like my warning to you. I don't know what to do with this information, but that like no one's really coming to save us. Right. The, and coordinating across states when the elections for every state representative is different because I've been going through because I thought, hey, let's just do this thing where we don't send anybody back who was an incumbent. Even if you're not Republican, just vote for the non-incumbent, right? Because mm-hmm. it would throw Congress into chaos. Mm-hmm. So I, so before, like, I went down the road to suggesting it on a, on a show like this one, mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought I'd, like, look at what are we looking at in terms of how many Republicans would people have to vote for in blue districts and what would that mean? And so look, just looking at trying to figure out when all the primaries are for the different states. So one of the things that's happening right now is there's a lot of Democrats saying, well, vote, go vote. Well, there's only 13 or 14 states that still have primaries where you could get a non-establishment Democrat. On the, on the ballots, but nobody's, nobody's saying what those states are. So the people in those states may not even know that they're in a situation where they might be able to support an alternative Democrat to the one that's currently there. Right. Mm-hmm. And, but coordinating that kind of messaging is, as you probably know, since you work for Bernie's campaign is, is a massive project. It is. <laughs> But having is, conversations yeah. can can help because crowdsourcing democracy, that's what democracy is supposed to be. We, it, it, we need all of us. It's true. It's true. Including you. I don't know. I don't... I'm so happy to hear you, even when you're upset and sad and frustrated <laughs> and tired of all the BS of it all. It, it, your voice is so clear and your messaging is not messaging. It comes from a place that actually makes sense to me. And it rings for me true. And I really appreciate your voice out here in the middle of all the crap. Well, I I appreciate you too, Amanda. Like I I said this before, and I I do think that uh, the frustration that I'm hearing myself (laughs) express today is I didn't come to this thinking, oh, I'm like in a frustrated, bad mood or anything. Um, but what I'm realizing as I reflect on why I am where I am kind of attitudinally is 
that it's because in some ways doing bad faith was trying to figure out the state of play and what the solutions were. And I think uh, I'm listening to you guys too. Like you guys know, like everybody knows the answer. Everybody has diagnosed the problem and everybody knows the answer. And I think bad faith is useful insofar as obviously there's things, specific issues that we don't know about or like things that need to be brought attention to and the Matthew Ho stuff and, you know, all those kind of interviews, different candidates, different activist groups, social alternative, all of that stuff is still useful. But the main utility now I'm thinking to me is to pivot toward, okay, but how do you apply the, the pressure and how do you do the pressure campaigns, you know, Ro Khanna will come on, but nobody else won't. So it's not just going to be the force of interviewing and exposing that we get really movement on this sort of thing. And Uh at what point do I start to shift my attention and do we all maybe collectively start to shift our attention to having off the record meetings where we can talk about some other kinds of things, Uh you know, including different kinds of public actions that can actually exert real pressure. Yeah. I completely, I completely agree. I'm at that place too, where I'm just frustrated at all the talking because I hear so many people are now aware and so many more people are having the conversations that it's like, okay, let's get to it. Now, what do we do? So Mm -hmm. I'm really glad that you have those, you ask those questions of your guests and it's, I'm sure that I'm not the only one that notices that it really does give us more to think about and ways to try and find solutions. Because people like you making making more noise because you're getting a larger platform is a great thing. It's not an easy thing for you, but it's a good thing for the rest of us. So I well, wish I, you a happy 4th of July. <laughs> Thank you, Amanda. I appreciate that. And I wish the same for you and that cute cat in your avatar. <laughs> <laughs> you have a good one, Bree. You too. All right, Fahim, I feel so bad about you being in that first seat and getting passed over that I'm going to make you the last caller. What's on your mind? Can you hear me? I can. Okay. So um, July 4th, and um, I was uh, thinking about it a couple of years ago of um, the fact that you guys were talking about like uh, violence uh, and all. And um, a thought that came to me a few years ago was that uh, how many uh, people would say that, you know what, uh, be sensitive about uh, fireworks in, the, uh, in your neighborhood uh, because uh, of uh, people having dogs and so on and so mm-hmm. forth. And, and, and some people, they'll leave town uh, with their uh, dogs to get away from fireworks. And people, and a lot of folks are like, oh, that's uh, so uh, great. And, and everybody's so empathetic. And I think about that and and I'm like okay on one hand you guys are all uh, feeling um, empathetic and all when it comes to dogs but at the same time uh, when it comes to like uh, uh, unleashing violence on the planet uh, you uh, don't even bat an eye and on the other hand uh, also of when people come to the um, um, or when my uh, people come to the U.S. because of the violence we have un- unleashed, uh, our response is, "Please don't come! Please don't come!" Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I, that to me was uh, it was just something like on Fourth of July. I just uh, thought of that, and uh, and I was like, "This is uh, one messed up uh, situation of where uh, folks are uh, sensitive uh, 
that they think more about a dog. And this is coming from a serious dog person. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, I and, see it from your profile. <laughs> well, uh, my pooch, believe it or not, he was born uh, near all where you were raised in Kenya. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. He was uh, in Naivasha, uh, in Lake Marula area. Oh. Uh, so, yeah. And he, and I brought him here when he was about 21 months old. Um, mm. So, but either way, I mean, it was just a thought uh, that I had and I uh, wanted uh, to share. And with regards to what Amanda just mentioned, I mean, um, you know, uh, like Marx once uh, said that if a revolution is going to come, it would come in the realm of necessity, I mean, realm of freedom, uh, as opposed to a realm of necessity. He was looking at more uh, from uh, like Germany and all uh, where uh, um, things would uh, uh, turn, but it came in the realm. Of, but all the uh, countries where socialism uh, came, it came in the realm of necessity. Whether it's Soviet Union or whether it's uh, uh, Vietnam and so on and so forth. And at times, I, I don't know. I just think uh, that i see people are hurting but i'm like are, are is the country hurting that bad uh or or uh not because i just with uh, change and nothing like really changing i'm like well i guess people are not hurting that uh bad uh, and, uh otherwise uh, folks would be marching and shutting down the highways and all mm-hmm. and so it was just something that I always uh, uh, thought of, and uh, and I'm like, I don't buy this realm of freedom business. Uh, maybe I'm interpreting it wrong, but uh, it seems uh, that uh, it's uh, people are not really gonna move till they are really uh, uh, feeling the pain uh, per se. So, just wanted to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, maybe it's maybe it's not bad enough yet. You know, maybe it's not. But also, I think there is this thing that is kind of unique to the states where people feel like even if it is bad, it's their fault. And that's our okay. unique brand of propaganda where we are told that there is a thing that is the American dream. And if you work hard, you can make it. And you have people who are not, in fact, middle class describing themselves as such because they feel shame around the alternative. There is a weird racialized aspect to this where I think in particular lower income white people don't re- resist seeing themselves as poor or low income because there is a narrative about who is poor in America and who is undeserving. Um, for all that she's criticized, there's this anecdote in Robin D'Angelo's book about how growing up poor and white, she remembers being in a public park one day and they were scavenging food off of tables and a black family got up and left a table and left some food behind and the kids went for it. Her mom told her, no, we won't eat the, that food. Like we're not that low, you know? Hmm. And so I think that, that that is part of it as well, that, that that racial dynamic prevents us from seeing our kind of shared class identities in ways that we've talked about a lot on the show, obviously. Um, I think that because the country as a whole has such a high level of affluence, that even people who are quite poor can kind of get their hands on some basic goods that can make you feel like you have a little something in life. I think that the extension of credit, the loosen, you know, the ability of people to get credit cards and kind of buy into a lot of the materialism 
keeps people from feeling quite how bad it is oftentimes and like like they have quite a bit to lose in a revolution as it were um i think there is uh, a real belief that everyone's you know one week away from a Horatio Alger story and really making it a way that I think is not necessarily the case in other countries. People like really think they can hit it big and make it and enough people perhaps do that. It still makes people buy into the dream. I think high rates of home ownership still relatively make it difficult for people to give up on the system. They have a literal investment in the property. I think Hollywood has played a huge role in propaganda and propaganda and making us seem like we are all heroes. The nation is here is heroic. The government is heroic. Even conservative governments, except for perhaps Donald Trump, George Bush is embraced literally by Michelle Obama and figuratively by the Democratic Party. And so I don't know if it's just not that bad yet, or if the psychological work that's been done in the American people to not see themselves as deserving more is just unique and just another challenge to surmount. Okay. Yeah, that's, um, I mean, the propaganda that uh, we have over here is just, uh, I mean, uh, each time we hear about like Russian propaganda, I'm like, okay, the Russians would uh, basically be like, shoot, man, uh, uh, what are you talking about? How do you how do you mean? Well, uh, no, I, I mean uh, just the in uh, in, the intensity of like uh, USA good USA uh, good our this uh, uh, of our system is uh, great. We have a very equal system. I mean, it's the constant mm. uh, mm-hmm. battering over uh, uh, over generations, and that to me uh, it is like so powerful that uh, I don't see any other uh, um, countries uh, like two-bit shows uh, or um, um, how do I say it? Like any uh, access to uh, any uh, other country's news and and Mm -hmm. all this. it's nothing close to what we hear about our mm-hmm. uh, system uh, mm-hmm. domestically. So to me, I'm like, okay, what are we talking about in terms of like uh, Russian propaganda or this propaganda mm-hmm. or that propaganda? Our own propaganda is so extremely strong uh, here. So yeah, for sure, for sure, but, for sure. It's invisible to us, you know. It's it's largely invisible to us, um, and that's part of the problem. But that's all to say, like, I, I, to be honest, I just, I don't think it needs to get that worse, that, that much worse. I don't think that it, the people, that people are like good enough. I do think it's all those other things. And I, whatever you think about Bernie at this point, when he was doing those rallies and talking about Medicare for all and asking people to come up and talk and they were sharing their stories, it's hard to fully articulate what was happening in those rooms when you heard people realize that this thing that they had been so ashamed of, you know, my wife is sick and I can't pay for her to get better. You know, you know, my child is sick and I couldn't afford for and my adult child. I couldn't afford their health insurance. You know, I lost my job and my family lost their health insurance. 
you know, I didn't yeah. go to the hospital for years and years. And then I discovered I had something wrong with me that was preventable. And I'm about to leave my family without a breadwinner because, you know, I didn't have health insurance. And, and the shift from like all of the shame around that, because, you know, you're supposed to have health insurance. You must have been negligent. This is your fault. The shift from realizing it wasn't just their individual failures to realizing it was a systemic issue that everyone found themselves in this situation because it's not an individual choice not to pay money that you can't, you don't have. And the power that came, that the shift from shame to power, empowerment, as people simply share their stories and remember and realize that this was a condition of the country and one that they could change and that there was someone standing in front of them on a national stage with the potential to really change it. You know, I, I do think there was really something about the ability uh, about having these conversations and having these forums and m- public moments like Roe being overturned that made people realize that we are all victims in this very fragile and very inequitable system, that it's an empowering moment with a lot of potential for change. You only, you know, this, this is that propaganda bubble getting pierced. We're not the greatest country in the world. More and more people are saying it. Okay. Yeah. And we all saw it last week. We all saw these last slate of uh, Supreme Court decisions. We all see it when we can't even celebrate the nation's birthday without a mass shooting event. So now what? Is someone going to grab the ring and take advantage of this moment? You know? Yeah. But anyways, Bree, thank you so much for taking my call. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you for calling in. I want to thank all of you. I know this is a little bit a non-celebratory uh, fourth conversation, but I hope you guys all uh, have something fun on track for this evening. Please stay safe as you watch fireworks or cook out or, you know, watch some Stokely Carmichael videos, you know, whatever gets you going. <laughs> uh, I am going to be away next week uh, on vacation into a friend's wedding, but I will be back on the show um i pre-recorded an episode so next monday there will be a show i think thursday is going to be a a rerun um but i'll see you all back soon take care and keep the faith